Uh, if you're a Republican and you think that Twitter is doing an awful job and is biased against your speech, start using TikTok. Go on Twitch. Go on Discord. Go on Parler. Right? There are other um, social media platforms that are growing in this marketplace. And the one thing that will harm your ability to choose alternative uh, social media platforms is by the government coming in and regulating it more. That is Billy Easley. I'm Dwayne Lester, and this is Top Priority. Welcome to Top Priority, a production of the Americans for Prosperity Foundation's Grassroots Leadership Academy. I'm Dwayne Lester. Today's top priority is tech and innovation. Once again, we'll be discussing Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, this time with Billy Easley, who wrote an article at Slate titled, Revising the Law That Lets Platforms Moderate Content Will Silence Marginalized Voices. Now, in the, in the conversation that follows, You'll hear us use terms like community and vision, and you'll hear us talk about mutually reinforcing principles. And before we get into the interview, let's talk about what those things mean. Americans for Prosperity Foundation and the Grassroots Leadership Academy are part of the Stand Together community. A link to the Stand Together website is included in the show notes. Each episode, we focus heavily on how our vision guides our decision in the different specific areas of focus we try to impact. We call these areas priority initiatives, and sometimes we abbreviate them as PI or PIs. Now, the vision itself is ambitious. We break barriers that stand in the way of people realizing their potential. This moves our society towards one of mutual benefit, where people succeed by helping others improve their lives. This vision is built upon four mutually reinforcing principles, which we'll also discuss and I mentioned before. The principles are equal rights, mutual benefit, openness, and self-actualization. You can find the vision and the four mutually reinforcing principles again in the show notes. Now, let's get to this article and the interview with Billy Easley. Well, let's get, let's get right into it because it wasn't that long ago that I got an email that said, uh, hey, I think it was from Jim, right? Jim Fellinger said, hey, Dwayne, right. sometime in the future, you need to go over, uh, go, do a podcast with Billy about his article. So let's do a podcast about the article. The title, <laughs> Revising the Law that Lets Platforms Moderate Content Will Silence Marginalized Voices. So intriguing, very, very intriguing. Let's go through it uh, just by the title. First, what's the law we're talking about? And then... Tell me, how's that going to marginalize or silence marginalized voices? So the law we're talking about is Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. Uh, so Section 230 uh, was a law that was passed really at the very beginning of the Internet Revolution in 1996 or so. Um, and what it basically said was that you are responsible for the speech that you post online, not the platform you use. So if you decide to say that, you know, uh, your your town mayor is a murderer, right? And they aren't. Um, then Facebook isn't responsible for the content of that message, right? They're 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 not the ones who have defamed anyone. You are. So 
you could be sued for that defamatory slander. Facebook wouldn't be. And the reason why Congress decided to pass such a law is twofold. Um, number one, there were legal challenges to other websites that were moderating content. And courts were basically saying that if you choose to moderate content, right, if you choose to decide to take down content that is slanderous, then we are going to say that you are responsible for that speech. Um, what wound up happening as a result of that is that more and more places, uh, websites are just simply saying, okay, well, we're just not going to moderate content. If moderating means that we're responsible, we're going to be held legally liable for anything we accidentally don't take down, then we're just not going to moderate at all. Um, and that's a really bad incentive structure, right? Because it basically means that um, it basically incentivizes websites to just say, all right, well, we'll just let bygones be bygones and let anyone say what they want to say, even if it is something that is like, you know, really uh, egregious, right? Um, so the whole point of Section 230 is to incentivize free speech, right? It's supposed to allow people who um, want to be able to, to organize online, talk online to do so, and to allow businesses um, to support that sort of um, sort of natural inclination to allowing more voices to be heard. So that's one of the main things I wanted to, to focus on in this piece, which is the real free speech benefit of Section 230, because if we didn't have this law, um, then we wouldn't have a Facebook and we wouldn't have a, a Twitter, right? And, and more importantly, since I know Facebook and Twitter tend to be at the center of these free speech conversations, you couldn't have a Wikipedia if there wasn't a Section 230 because it's user-generated content. That's the only thing that's on Wikipedia, um, and they wouldn't be able to handle uh, the number of politicians or – uh, governments that said that, hey, you know what, we disagree with what you posted online. Um, so I got a little long-winded there, but this law is really at the center of the free speech web that we enjoy today. Um, and uh, America's free law online experience wouldn't be the same without it. Now, you write in the article, the left, this is really a bipartisan issue, because when, when, when you said earlier, if there was no Section 230, there would be no Facebook, there would be no Twitter. And I thought, that seems to be a goal for some folks. <laughs> I'm thinking they're they're seeing that as a, not as a as a, a flaw, but as a feature. Uh, so so, but it, it it and it is a bipartisan effort to to amend this. But you write the left believes that somehow dismantling Section 230 will stop people from sharing misinformation and harassing people online. The right believes that removing 230 protections will mean less censorship censorship of conservative speeches. Both sides are wrong. How are they both wrong? Uh, so I'm going to start with uh, with the right. So Senator Ted Cruz, Senator Josh Hawley, um, and quite a quite a lot of you know even some of the grassroots people that I talk to, right, um, are really sort of disturbed by some of the social media content uh, moderation practices that Twitter and Facebook have have adopted, and they're really worried that these practices um, basically censor conservative views. So. I want to be very clear here. I think Twitter and Facebook do a miserable job and moderating content. Um, and I think one of the best examples of that is their decision to censor the Hunter Biden story two weeks before the election. Right. That was an example of a credible news organization, New York Post, um, coming out with a news story and these websites deciding, hey, you know what? We don't think it's credible. We are going to act as editors 
and decide to not allow this speech to be on our platform. Um, I think that was a, a, a really bad decision, and I think it harmed free speech. Um, so I, I'm just bringing that up because I understand why conservatives, you know, are not you know big fans of these large social media companies right now. But two points here: if Section 230 is eliminated or narrowed, it's going to be harder for new emerging companies to enter this market. First of all, right? Um, you know, I've talked to venture capitalists who are invested in, you know, hoping to invest in the next Facebook and the next Google and the next Twitter. Um, and those companies rely on user-generated content. And if you decide to make every single company um, that's online liable for the speech that their users make, then you're not going to see a lot of competition in this marketplace anymore because only the biggest players and the ones with the most money are going to be able to afford to deal with the new regulatory environment. So I don't think that conservatives are really sort of internalizing that and recognizing that. Um, and then the other point about this is is that um, this is going to harm speech generally, right? Like conservatives have done an excellent job of using the internet to do an end run around the mainstream media. And this is one of the key points about my piece, right? Like the internet allows people who are ignored by the mainstream media to find a new platform on their own and directly go to other people like them and other audiences without having to go through the traditional gatekeepers that you know typically exist in the media landscape. Um, and if we cut that off, if we narrow that end run, we're going to be harming conservative speech as well as the speech of other marginalized voices. Um, I, so that was a long way to answer, Dwayne. But I do want to go to uh, to the point that you mentioned before, which is why do liberals attack Section 230? Um, and the reason why they attack it is because they see Section 230 as the reason why hate speech, harassment – um, and terrorist content can be found online. Um, and my whole response to that is all that stuff was online before, right? Uh, there's a thing called the dark web, right? It's, if, if you're not seeing it on Facebook, all this stuff you can find on 8chan or 4chan, which I don't recommend anyone on this podcast visit, uh, or on other sites, right? So you, you can't – it's human nature, right? There are some people who are just going to say bad things. And there's no right way around that. Um, and the other thing that I note against the the more liberal position on this is there's no way there's no way to eliminate hate speech. And we also know that because we can just look across the pond to the Atlantic uh, to to Europe. Now Germany and France have hate speech laws. Um, they ban uh, hate speech in certain cases, um, and hate speech still finds its way online. So I, I just think it's a complete misnomer to point to Section 230, and I think both of these – both sides of the political um, debate here are using Section 230 as a punching bag for a really complex, difficult issue that we can solve in other ways beyond simply using the, the hard hammer of the law uh, to fix. So you're saying that if we allow the changes to Section 230 or we allow it to be, to be amended or eliminated, that – marginalized voices will be silenced because those platforms won't exist anymore or there will be fewer of them to, I want to make sure I understand you correctly. So both, if we decide to narrow section 230, a lot of these bills that we've seen introduced in Congress either narrow section 230, right? By saying, look, section 230 only 
allows platforms to take down hate speech, right, or election misinformation, or they just revoke Section 230 altogether. We're going to see two main – actually, no, three things will result. Number one, you're going to see less speech online because companies are going to say, hey, look, we don't want to be held legally liable for the content that other people are posting, not us, but other people. Um, so you're going to see Twitter, Facebook, Reddit, Wikipedia have to change their business models entirely. Right Now, that might mean that they say, hey, you're going to have to wait a couple hours before your tweet shows up. Right. Or Wikipedia might say that, you know what, we can no longer host, you know, you know a billion web pages on, on specific topics. We're going to have to narrow how many web pages we have. Um, or Facebook could decentralize and simply say, you know what, you can no longer friend more individuals. Um, we need to narrow the amount of people. Uh, social, we need to narrow our social network to a certain degree. So you're going to see a major change in the business models of these companies. You're going to see less competition. Because if you're an upstart social media company like Parler, um, you're not going to see a lot of investment in these companies because those business models will no longer be able to exist under this new re regulatory environment. And finally, and most importantly in my view, um, it's going to be really much a lot harder for people to be able to connect and organize online. Um, this isn't just about marginalized voices, and I'll be I'll be very clear about this. One of the frameworks that I used on on this piece is that um, minority communities, African American communities, um, queer communities, have historically used the internet to come together and to find a platform where they traditionally are not, you know, um, recognized in the mainstream media. Um, and conservatives have done that as well. And it's going to just be a lot harder for all these groups to be able to get their message out is Section 230 changes. Did I answer your question there, Dwayne? Yeah, yeah, you, you did. You did. And, and there are other points in this article that I want to make sure we cover. Uh, but what I found I found really interesting was you said, uh, if you were a lawyer for Facebook or Reddit and Section 230 was revoked, you'd urge them to remove all content that had a hint of controversy to protect from legal liability, even if it meant removing legitimate constructive speech because – and that's exactly what happened after Congress passed SESTA-FOSTA. I assume I'm saying that right. I've never heard of the law, so your article educated me there. So thank you for that. I always appreciate learning more. Tell me what that was and what happened after they passed it and how that is kind of a, a, um, a look at what will happen if, we, if these changes are made. So SESTA-FOSTA made every uh, – internet company liable for any speech on their platform that facilitated um, basically um, uh, sex trafficking. That's right. Um, so basically what it said was, hey, look, Facebook, Twitter, um, Yelp, any, any website, if we believe that you have facilitated sex trafficking in any way whatsoever, um, or if someone else on your platform and this is key. If someone else on your platform has used your platform to facilitate sex trafficking, then you're going to be, as a company, you are going to be liable for the user-generated content. Um, so I just want to be very clear about this, first of all. Um, of course, uh, sex trafficking is a horrible offense, right? It, it, it harms so many people. Um, it is when I was when I was a congressional staffer, there was bipartisan consensus that we needed to do something to 
um, you know, at least harm the scourge of, of sex, sex trafficking in the United States. Everyone agrees with this. Um, but this was an instance in a very clear case of Congress not recognizing what the impact of such a broad prohibition would be. And what wound up happening is um, Reddit, for example, decided to take down any group that talked about um, um, sexual practices at all. Um, so what that basically meant was for a period of time on, on Reddit, like you couldn't find a Reddit that talked about sex, right? Because lawyers for Reddit said, hey, look, what if someone in, on these small Reddits decided to talk about you know, um, sexual practices among teenagers? What if um, someone on that page decided to talk about something that could be interpreted as facilitating sex trafficking? And the other point about this is um, I – the bill itself, the law, does not define what facilitating sex trafficking is, right? So we know, you know, it's pretty clear if someone is saying, hey, I'm trying to sell an individual for, for sex, that's sex trafficking. But there are a lot of instances where it's not clear. And that's really what I, I want everyone on this call to, on this podcast to really understand is that when, when Congress decides to regulate speech, there are always going to be unforeseen consequences. Um, Congress always thinks it's no, it knows how to square the the um, this difficult issue about trying to cabin off speech and prohibit um, really difficult speech, and it fails almost every time. Um, it failed with SESTA-FOSA. It failed back in the 1960s when Congress decided to – I mean when the presidential administration decided to uh, enforce the Fairness Doctrine, right? There are all these times where people try to use um, narrowing our First Amendment rights as a way of saying this is good for all of us, um, and it just doesn't work. It winds up harming speech that no one intended to harm. Um, and I think SESTA-FOSTA illustrates this. And the last thing I'll note about SESTA-FOSTA is that it's actually being um, deliberated in federal court right now because of its First Amendment impact. Um, and the other quick thing about this is, is that SESTA-FOSTA sort of also illustrates how um, there are other ways beyond you know legal prohibitions on free speech that we can deal with um, societal problems. Right? If you're worried about sex trafficking online, Give more money to the Department of Justice, right? Like prosecute these offenses, put these guys in jail, right? Um, if you're worried about um, – and I would analogize that to the complaints that we're hearing from both the left and right. If you're a Democrat and you're worried about um, the hate speech that's on Facebook, right, if that's something that really bothers you, don't use Facebook, right? Or contact Facebook and tell them that, hey, look, you know, we want you to enforce – your policies against hate speech, if that's how you feel. Uh, if you're a Republican and you think that Twitter is doing an awful job and is biased against your speech, start using TikTok. Go on Twitch. Go on Discord. Go on Parler. Right? There are other um, social media platforms that are growing in this marketplace, and the one thing that will harm your ability to choose alternative uh, social media platforms is by the government coming in and regulating it more. There's a there's a line of thinking out there that I see repeatedly that goes along with with asking Facebook to do something or asking Twitter to do something. And that that mental model, which is mistaken, is that once one of these platforms starts deciding what people can say on their platform, they move 
from being a platform to being a publisher. Have, have you heard this, this argument before? And what are your thoughts on it? So I have heard this argument before, um, and it just doesn't work. There's nothing, and, and here's what I'll do. I am a, and so I, some of the people on this podcast probably don't know, but I, I am a lawyer. I uh, used to be at least in a previous life. Uh, and one of the things that I always do when I try to come up with an opinion about the law is that I go to the text of the law. And Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act does not talk about um, – does not make a distinction between platforms and publishers. It's right? a short, it's it just, a short little regulation or, or we can put it in the show notes. You can read it in no time. But you're right. Nowhere it, in there do they make that distinction. It, it simply says that you know, no internet service provider will be treated as a publisher of content. Right? It's, it, all it simply says is that – Facebook is not the publisher of the content that I, Billy Easley, posts on Facebook, which makes sense, right? It does not make a distinction about, hey, look, if Facebook decides to start moderating, then they are now a publisher. And in fact, that would have gone against the intent of the law. What the Congress wanted to happen is they wanted all of these communities, all these exciting new internet companies to be able to come up with moderation practices that fit their community. Um one of the most fascinating websites I think that's around is Reddit, right? I love Reddit because the whole um, point about Reddit, right, is to give power to the members of specific communities, right? Like I'm a big fan of Game of Thrones, right? So I am go on the Song of Ice and Fire Reddit all the time, right? Um, there's no centralized moderation of that Reddit, right? It's members of that community specifically who also have a passion for a subject, who are choosing to moderate it, right? Um, and moderate in a way that fits with that community. Um, that You can only have that sort of business model if you have the free speech protections that we have in place right now, right? Uh, it wouldn't exist if we made Reddit uh, the um, – if we treated Reddit as a publisher. And I think one of the other problems with this is um, when people make this argument about social media companies becoming publishers instead of platforms is that it really misunderstands what publishers are, right? Like the New York times is a publisher, right? The, the Houston Chronicle is a publisher because it reads and reviews every article that it posts, right? And it exercises editorial discretion about what's posted, um, what's allowed on it, on it. Um, and, and, and as a matter of scale, right? Like, you might see 20 or 30 articles in your New York Times when you're reading it, right? There are billions of content being put on YouTube and Twitter and Facebook every day. There's no way these companies can review all of them. And if we treat them as publishers, they're they're not going to be able to, to, to actually effectuate that policy. Um, so no, I, I think it's sort of a misnomer, to be honest with you, to, to treat these companies as publishers, and, and it will lead to less speech. Yeah, you make the point in the article that if they do have to review – each and everything before they put it on, which would you would as a lawyer, you'd say, yeah, you'd better do that to uh, you know cover your hind end because who knows what's going to be on there and you're liable for it. Imagine having to wait for legal review of each tweet. Yeah, yeah, that's that's my key point here. Um, no one wants this world. No one wants to wait a week for their tweet to go online. Um, now, maybe some of us do need to wait a week, right? Because sometimes we tweet when we're angry. But there is a catharsis um, to, to deleting that tweet, you know, just let it go, put it out there. 
and then slowly <laughs> delete it. You don't need to put it all out there. But but here's the thing, right? When when government tries to regulate speech, it puts reg- it puts roadblocks in the way of our ability to communicate with like-minded people and different-minded people. Um, and I just think that's just going to be there's going to be massive complications if Congress goes this way. Um, and that's what I really wanted to to make people aware of because I think one of the problems with with uh, the conversation around Section 230 is people have a, a habit of talking about solely about how Section 230 has really benefited American companies, American technology companies, and that's true. Like we lead the way in regards to innovation. Um, Europe, we leave Europe in the dust when it comes to to the amount of technology companies that are headquartered here in the United States. That's important, and we should talk about maintaining that um, that number one distinction. Uh, but what's also really important to me is protecting communities and protecting people's ability to to really um, talk and organize online. Um, and one thing I know a lot of people in the AFP community are going to be listening to this call. And one of the things I really want you to walk away from this conversation thinking about is how many times you use the internet to organize, to to create events, right? To reach out to grassroots staffers, to reach out to new volunteers. Um, narrowing Section 230 jeopardizes all of that in ways that I feel like conservatives especially haven't really uh, reckoned with. And we really need to before we decide to to take away our our uh, harm the free speech incentives incentives for the business community. One thing that I think about when I think about uh, this, the idea of making Facebook liable for the the content that people put out there. I think, what if we applied that to other industries? Like, what if we made, what if we made Smith and Wesson responsible for every action that a gun owner ever took, or making Winchester responsible for anything anybody ever did with one of their guns? You think about that, and that's that would be an incredible attack on the Second Amendment, much like this is an incredible attack on the First Amendment. Um, you know, it's interesting that you bring that up because for a few years there, this was a main issue on the on the left, right? Allowing gun manufacturers to be liable for um, what people use their guns for, right? Um, and I'm I'm actually I haven't thought about that, Dwayne, before, but I think that is a very succinct analogy to what's happening here right um i don't think gun manufacturers are responsible for what people use their guns for right and it doesn't make intuitive sense to to do that at all and it's the same way with these platforms right um platforms are a tool you could use platforms for good and you can use platforms for bad just like with any other tool um and you should hold the person who uses the platforms for bad for disastrous reasons for harassment for bad faith reasons should hold those people responsible um but that doesn't mean that you should tear down that platform um and if you do tear down that platform at least be aware of all the you know negative consequences all the externalities that come with that all the people that you're taking your voice away from um and i i I just think that policymakers are really sort of ignoring that um I, i hope you don't mind i think i'm going to steal that gun example Honestly, I think that's a really good way of thinking about it. I think you should. You know, I, I think uh, I I was curious when I put it out there whether whether it was relevant. But if it helps you, then please do. You wrote, if you have a problem with private platforms deciding how to moderate content users post, 
then your problem isn't actually with 230. It's with the First Amendment and the Supreme Court. Help me understand that. The, the Supreme Court has consistently sided with increasing the protecting the First Amendment. Um, it's, it's actually really kind of wild um, how, uh, how far the Supreme Court has gone in favor of protecting the First Amendment. Wild in a great way. Um, it, I can't remember the last time the, a First Amendment case has gone before the court where the court had to review a government restriction or regulation on free speech where the government won. Almost every single time the government says no. The, I mean the Supreme Court says no. The, the government is not allowed to regulate this speech because the First Amendment's protections are so involved, so important, so critical to a democratic society. Um, and the First Amendment is, um, is so central to our identity. Um, so the reason why I, I sort of wanted to bring that up is um, it's, it's always been really weird to me. Um, the, the left I understand. The left has a different view of the Constitution, right? Like they they want what they want, but conservatives we're supposed to be dedicated to this the text of this document, right? We believe in the Constitution's ability to protect individual rights, um, and we use those protections to um, to help break down barriers, right? That the government tries to put up, um, and yet we're hearing conservatives really try to use the government to regulate speech. Um, and so one of the reasons why I, I said that is because um, if conservatives try to pass a regulation on Section 230, it is absolutely going to go before the court because the court has always supported free speech rights, and it's going to have to be litigated. And I think it's going to be a really weird situation where conservatives say, hey – we want to narrow speech. I've I don't know about you, but like I did not go into politics to restrict free speech rights, and it's really weird seeing uh, conservatives try to to take that that tack. You know, it reminds me of of the eighties, where pre Limbaugh, we we tried to do the same thing with speech on the radios, where we said if you're going to have this much opinion, you have to have this much opinion. And what were the uh, unintended consequences, or maybe intended consequences, of some you had absolutely no opinion? It was very bland, and there was no talk radio. And then you get rid of that, and now you've got you've got opinions. You actually have the openness that we look for, uh, where ideas are talked about. You talk about being a, a, a free speech absolutist. You talk about wanting more speech. And I've read before, I don't remember where, heard it many times, that the answer to bad speech is more speech. The answer to hate speech is more speech. Um, but you, you, you make a lot of good points regarding that in your article. One thing that I want to wrap up with, because we're, we're at about 30 minutes, though, one thing I highlighted that I, I found very profound. You said you're as concerned about Section 230's impact on civil rights laws as you are about the awful moderation decisions of big tech. Help me understand how um, Section 230, what, what Section 230's impact is on civil rights laws. Uh, that's a really good question. So um, I'm going to go to a couple legal cases if you're, uh, if everyone here doesn't mind me doing that. Um, so Section 230 says that uh, platforms aren't responsible for user-generated content. Um, but what that also means is if you create discriminatory ads, for example, 
specifically housing ads is a legal case where we, we saw this happen. Um, then Facebook isn't responsible for that, even though that they, even though they cleared that ad. So, um, I believe it was two or three years ago, the, um, uh, which department was it? The housing and urban development, uh, uh, sued Facebook because Facebook allowed for ads that were discriminatory on, on their platform. As it basically said that basically disallowed African-Americans from being able to apply for housing, right? Or were specifically targeted uh, not to African-Americans or Mexican-Americans. Um, and a lot of people in the civil rights community said, hey, like this is discriminatory. We should be able to sue Facebook for allowing these ads on their platform. Uh, and Section 230 doesn't allow for that. Um, and I thought that, you know, I actually thought that the civil rights community had a point there about this. Like, you know, this is a, this is a consequence of section 230 that a lot of people had not really considered before. Um, and I do think that there are other ways around this, right? Like one of the things that happened was, uh, Facebook simply said, okay, you know what? We got sued for this. We are going to do a better job about, um, reviewing the ads that are on our platform and making sure that there are no discriminatory practices on this. But I thought it was, I thought it was a very valid point for civil rights groups to, to bring up. Um, and the reason why I bring, brought up um, the sort of civil rights uh, issues with Section 230 and the poor moderation practices is that I wanted to make sure that everyone reading this piece and everyone listening to this podcast understand that um, the people on this other side of the debate – I'm a free speech absolutist, but the people on the other side of this debate who want to narrow Section 230 are, are not all bad faith actors. There are some people here who have real concerns about – um, the impact of speech online, right? About what how speech, um, you know, uh, how speech can can turn people off from wanting to go online, right? Like harassing people online is a terrible thing, right? Or you know, social media practices that um, uh, that decrease content, right? Like the Hunter Biden story that I mentioned before. These are really bad things that we should should talk about. But I am committed to the idea that using the law to change free speech incentives is going to ultimately harm all of us. And I'll just return to what you said, Dwayne, before. More speech is the best way to, to counter bad speech. That's one of the – that's really the heart of both the free speech PI and the tech and innovation PI. Uh, and it's something that I think is really at the heart of our community. Uh, and I think the government trying to intervene and, and change that and believing that they're the ones that have the, the ability and the wisdom to nitpick which speech should be online and which shouldn't is going to lead us to, to a really bad place. It's going to silence a lot of voices, and it will harm competition. We, we've talked a lot about your article here. We've covered, I think, uh, some of uh, the, the biggest points. But is there anything that, that you thought we needed to talk about that, that didn't get covered today? Yeah, I wanted to sort of talk about why I'm a free speech absolutist. Why I'm so dedicated to the idea that we should have a regulatory environment that incentivizes speech both in the public square and on public platforms. Um, and you know, getting a little personal here, you know, as an African American, um, one of the reasons why I have and enjoy so many of the rights that I have today is because of the civil rights movement. Um, and one of the reasons why the civil rights movement was able to be so successful is because of, of America's exceptional free speech um, environment, right? No other country has the sort of free speech protections that the United States has. 
um, even our contemporaries in the Western world don't protect speech to the degree that we do. Um, David French um, at uh, used to work at the National Review um, had a fantastic article, and I link it in my piece, where he talks to um, civil rights leaders and he asks them, "Hey, you know, why were you able to, you know, change the hearts and minds?" Of Americans in the 1950s and 1960s, and to get them to support the idea of of equality for all. And the civil rights leader that he talked to said that there were two reasons why they were able to do it. One, you know, Almighty God being able to, you know, change the hearts of people and open them up to to hearing, you know, the 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 need for treating everyone, regardless of race or creed or color, equally. That's number one. And number two, the First Amendment. That's a, that was a civil rights leader who said, you know, look, it was one, the, the willingness of people to open their hearts and hear our message in the legal um, position of our country, our f- exceptionalism and, and having legal protections that allow us to organize and speak to other people and have other people hear our voices. And that's what's at stake here, allowing people to speak and allowing them to be heard. Um, and when we allow that to happen, um, our country moves in the right direction. Thank you once again to Billy Easley for taking the time to talk to me about his article at Slate titled Revising the Law that Let's Platforms Moderate Content Will Silence Marginalized Voices. Now, if you have any questions about tech and innovation, Section 230, or any of the other priority initiatives we've talked about on the podcast, please feel free to reach out to me at toppriority at afphq.org. I look forward to reading all your emails. Until next time. Take care, and we'll see you then.